You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, today we are in the book of Judges chapter 5. And so let me just thank you for tracking along with these series. You, you people come every week, you watch online to go verse by verse through the book of Judges. What is up with you people? That is strange uh, to be doing that, uh, isn't it? That we get together and just, uh, it's an odd thing kind of to do, but it's the most powerful thing we could do is to open up God's word and uh, be taught and respond to his word. And today we are in Judges 5. You know, when it comes to sports fans, and I know not everybody's a sports fan, but when it comes to sports fans, um, I, I find there's two kinds of folks. There are those who uh, deem themselves purists that prefer college sports to professional sports. And then there are those uh, who prefer professional sports to college sports. I'm in the latter category. I prefer professional to college. However, there is one thing about college sports that I think is much better than professional sports, and that is the sort of school identity and the school traditions uh, that go around, uh, you know, attending a game. It's very different than to attend a sports game, especially in basketball or uh, football. It's certainly a different experience. The schools have uh, all their traditions. They have bands, they have cheers, they have songs. um, And uh, man, that's amazing. I was expecting some Aggie to yell something out. So thank you for exercising self-control. I knew, well, you took a cue, but I figured, I thought, well, that was amazing. The Holy Spirit is moving in our church. Um, and so anyway, but one of the greatest feelings, if you're a college football fan, to be at a, at a game in particular, I'm sure it's true with other sports as well. I don't want to just highlight football, but that's, that's where the most people are gathered. And uh, so at the end of a game, when your team has won a big game, to sing the school song, the fight song, whatever the tradition is, together at the end, and all the fans have their arms around each other, and they're going back and forth, and maybe they do some little sign thing, or they, you know, do that deal, and everybody does it together, whoa, 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 that kind of deal, and it's just wonderful, and there's a chant or song, but everybody is celebrating together through this sort of corporate uh, family song that is our school fight song, our school tradition that bonds us together in this victory. That's chapter five of the book of Judges. It's a bunch of college football fans cheering the victory that has just happened by singing a song together. Only what they are singing about is far greater than anything that's ever been accomplished in sports. It's the victory of the Lord. And what they're singing about is what happened in chapter four. So chapter five is not going to make any sense to you if you don't know what happened in chapter four. Even if you do know what happened in chapter four, chapter five is a little hard to follow because it's poetry. And so uh, it's a little hard to track with at points. So I need to tell you what happened in chapter four. If you were here last week, this will just refresh your memory. If you weren't here, then this is a very, very brief Uh, account of what happened. So the people of Israel are oppressed by the king of Canaan. His name is Jabin, and he has them under his thumb because he has 900 chariots. 
Uh, Israel has zero. And so he's got this, this uh, military technology, and he holds them uh, under his thumb. He, he treats them cruelly. The Scripture says he oppresses them cruelly. Well, he's got a general named Sisera who oversees, and we get this multiple times in the chapter, 900 chariots. Uh, and so Israel, for multiple years, has been under his rule. Well, there is this lady in Israel, and her name is Deborah. And she is a prophetess. She hears the word of the Lord, and then she tells the word of the Lord to the people of God. She's, she's a leader. She's judging and helping, kind of like a, a courtroom judge, actually, in this case, and uh, settling disputes and giving wisdom to people. Well, the Lord tells her as a prophetess that he is going to overthrow Sisera, the general, and his power over Israel. And he's going to lead, uh, he's going to call a guy named Barak to lead an army. So she gives this word of God to Barak and said, God is going to give you Sisera's army and he's calling you to go. And Barak uh, has a, uh, well, a sort of, uh, you know, not, not a great response, a very mediocre response. He says, yes, I will go, but only if you will go with me. So what he's saying is, Deborah, uh, normally women don't go to battle, uh, but if you will go to battle, I'll do it. And he actually says, if you won't go, I won't. Uh, so I will disobey the very calling of God if you don't go with me. So what she says is, okay, you're still going to win the battle because you're willing to go, but because you responded conditionally, uh, the glory of defeating Sisera personally, that glory is going to go to a woman. So we all expect it's her at that point in the story. So anyway, what happens is uh, they go out to battle, and uh, Sisera and his chariots are going along the Kishon River, uh, and the Kishon River sort of bed. It's in a valley, and uh, something happens. We're going to find out today. Something happens, and then Israel's troops come out of the hills, and uh, they defeat them. They get off their chariots, and Sisera the king runs. He goes running. And uh, he runs into this sort of village, this, this village of tents, and he meets a lady named Jael there. And she says, hey, come into my tent. I'll protect you because she is uh, opposed to Israel. So he thinks. And so she comes in. She gives him some milk to drink. He's exhausted. He says, if anybody comes looking for me, say, no, there's no foreign king uh, in this uh, tent. And uh, so he lays down. She puts a rug over him, supposedly, so I guess he would be hidden. And then she grabs a mallet, and she grabs a tent peg, and she drives it into his temple and pins him to the ground while he is asleep, and he dies. And thus... They win, and uh, the Canaanites are overthrown. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5 is a song celebrating that. Look at 5.1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day. So Deborah and Barak, the prophetess and the man who led the charge, they sing. Most of this is Deborah because she's going to identify herself at points. I, Deborah. But anyway, they're singing this song on the day of the battle. And as we go through this, please note that this song was passed on and would have been sung by generations following like a school fight song, only recognizing something far grander. So we're going to read it in sections, and then we're going to walk through it, and then we're going to apply it. So let's read the first section, which is verses 1 through 11. This section is really about God on the move. Uh, And as we go through, I'm not going to be able to touch everything. It's long. Um, but note that it's poetry, so it doesn't read like 
a narrative. It doesn't read like prose. Some of the nuances we're not going to cover, but we'll get the big ideas uh, at any rate. So verse, uh, verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings. Give ear, O princes. To the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir and when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in, the, ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. So the first section is going to be about God on the move. And we see there's kind of a call to worship in verses 2 and 3. It says, uh, she says, bless the Lord uh, in verse 2 because the leaders led and the people followed. Uh, that's an unusual circumstance throughout the history of God's people that leaders lead well and that people follow their leadership. So everything worked on this day of battle and she's praising God for that. And she wants outsiders to hear the song. Verse 3, she says, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. There are no kings or princes in Israel. So she's wanting outsiders to hear the people of God sing this song about what God has done. And that's always the way it's to be. Worship is to the Lord, but the Bible anticipates that outsiders would hear the worship of the Lord and would know about the character of God. That's our, that's our anticipation every, every Sunday we gather. Uh, we assume that there will be some here who do not know God, and we want them to hear us sing the truths of what he has done. Well, that's what she's saying. We want all the kings and princes to know the mighty power of God. The next thing they sing about, and it's, it's, it's hard to track exactly, but she sings about historic places, things that God has done in Israel's history. Now, this makes a lot of sense. If we remember throughout the book of Judges, the big problem with Israel is they forget the Lord. They forget what the Lord has done. And so they chase idols because idols look appealing when you forget how great the real God is. And so he mentions Sinai, or they mention, Deborah and Barak, sing of Sinai in verse 5. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. The mountains quaked before the Lord at Sinai. Well, now that's a significant place. Sinai is the place that God met Israel after he defeated Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. He defeated Egypt and brought them out and met them at Sinai. So we're singing here, we're singing about remember Sinai where everything quaked. Well, what happened at Sinai? At Sinai, God declared, you are my people and I am your God. He gave them the law. 
He made a covenant with them. He gave them an identity and said, you're to be a holy nation following my law. And you are to be a kingdom of priests. You are to mediate me to the nations. You are to represent me uh, to the nations uh, as priests of God. And so they're singing, hey, kings, everybody listen. Listen to what God has done. Uh, He quaked at Sinai, the earth quaked at Sinai, uh, and as he marched, it says, verse 4, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom. So he, this is the marching warrior God who frees his people historically, meets them at Sinai. Then from Sinai, it's, it's a reverse order here, but from Sinai, he marches through Seir, through Edom, and leads them to the promised land where they are now. So what he's doing, the song is doing, is reminding them of their history. And something very subtle but very powerful is here because as God marches, it says in verse 4, the heavens dropped, yes, clouds dropped water. That's going to be very important as we get on in the story. But when God travels with his people, he is Lord over the weather and makes it rain. This is a poke at Baal because Baal is the God of fertility, but he's also the God of the storm. That's who Canaan worships. So when our God moves, it rains. That's a, we'll come to that later. It's important to tell in what happens. So why are they singing of these places? Why aren't they just saying, this could be a very short song, God defeated Sisera, Uh, hooray, hooray, hallelujah. That could be the song, but they're reviewing their history because when you sing your history, it's a reminder. Singing is a reminder. Singing of what has happened in the past, remembering the past, commemorating the past, recalling the past is something very powerful. That's why we have the book of Psalms, and so many of the Psalms revisit what God has done. Because to sing is to remember, to embed it in our hearts, to sing the story of the Lord, what God has done. He didn't just defeat Sisera. Oh, he's defeated much greater than Sisera, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And that's why we gather and sing every week, because it reminds us what our mighty God has done for us in Christ Jesus. We sing our story. And as, which is God's story, we sing the history of what God has done, and we remind ourselves of the God we serve. And and that song of celebration empowers us uh, as we recall who he is and what he's done. Well, the next section describes desperate times in Israel, what it was like uh, before they were freed from Canaan, from king of Canaan and Jabin. And it tells us some interesting things. Verse 6 tells us the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. So it was a bad time. People didn't feel safe on the roads. I mean, you could get uh, harmed by a Canaanite on the road. So they had to take back roads when they wanted to travel. And, and, and seven, the villagers ceased to exist in Israel. Evidently, some of the villages disintegrated. The social fabric uh, of the culture, the villages, was disintegrating. The villagers ceased to exist. It was sort of every family for themselves, a very terrible time in the history of Israel. Well, why are they experiencing this bad stuff? Well, they're experiencing it because in the book of Judges, bad stuff always comes 
as the result of idolatry. So verse 8, when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. So the people of Israel have served other gods, and this has been their experience, a very bad situation. However, God raises up Deborah. Verse 7 says, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. So God, in the midst of we can't take the normal roads, villages are ceasing to exist, things are unraveling in society uh, because we're serving foreign gods, God raises up Deborah, and she, I love this picture, she's a mother in Israel. Uh, She leads uh, as a mother. She prophesies as a mother. She brings the word of God as a mother. She is nurturing the people of God through the word of God back to health as she calls Barak from God to lead in battle. And God restores their freedom. So he's just repeating all that's going on, and she's saying, we want this told everywhere. So uh, verse 11 says, even out at the watering places, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, uh, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. So God has been on the move. He raised up Deborah. Things have changed. So at the watering places where you would water your animals, for us it's a gas station. At the, every gas station, I want a band out there singing, singing and celebrating the victories of God, what he has done. So God is on the move. The next thing, next section is God's people on the move. Look at uh, verse 11, the last part of verse 11. Then down to the gates march the people of God. So verse 4, God is marching. Verse 11, the people are marching. So let's read verses 12, uh, verse 11 there through 23. Uh, then down to the gates march the people of God. The Lord, awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song, arise, Barak, lead away your captives, uh, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, March down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan... Why did he stay with his ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came. They fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Taanach by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of the steed of his steeds. Curse Miraz 
says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, if this feels like you're reading like medieval poetry in your high school English class, uh, this isn't medieval. This is written 3,000 years ago. Uh, so some of the images and the style of poetry may have been a little different. But shout out to all the English teachers who taught us how to understand stuff like this, but we weren't paying attention. So if you're a young person, uh, it is valuable to do well and learn in your English class. And the reason is because if you want to be a Christian, it's one of the most important classes you will have in all of school because if you want to be a Christian, you are committed to grammar the rest of your life. If We are people of the book. And to understand the book, you've got to understand genres. You've got to know how to read narrative. You've got to know how to read poetry. You've got to understand the difference in a, in a, a, a noun and a verb. Uh, so to read the Bible and understand it, you need what you weren't listening to back then. But thankfully, there are commentators that can help us uh, pick up uh, what we didn't get. So anyway, it's poetry. So it, it reads differently. I get that. But here are some of the big ideas. Uh, the people of God are on the march. We saw that in verse 11. Verse uh, 13, down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down. But not everybody marches. And so what, what they do next is, this is amazing, this is in the Bible, and you're singing this. They say which tribes are great and which tribes stunk. It would be like at the end of the year at the church, we all sing a song about which community groups are really healthy and which need to disband because they're terrible. And we just sing that and celebrate. That's what's like. We're calling out whole tribes. So first of all, there's this compliment of some of the tribes. Verse 14. Uh, this is great. Ephraim, their root, they marched. Okay, following you, Benjamin, they came. Machir marched down with his commanders. And Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff, fantastic. The princes of Issachar, oh, they're there. They are marching with Deborah. Uh, they are faithful to Barak, so Issachar showed no favorites. Uh, in the valley, they rushed at his heels. And uh, then verse 18, this is the highest praise. Uh, verse 18 says, Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So they're singing the song. These two tribes, they left it all on the field. They were willing to die for Yahweh, their God. Now, let's talk about some of the other tribes in the song. And it works musically because this is a song. It's, it's a little bit like a diss track because there is a critique of a couple of these tribes. Look at Reuben. So look at verse 15, the second half of 15. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. So Reuben thought about it. Maybe we should obey the Lord. They ruminated. They sat around the fire and talked about it. They journaled about it and went on a prayer retreat. And they called the family meeting of Reuben to dialogue and think about it. So they considered and they pondered. And then they decided, we'll stay with the sheep. God is taking down Canaan, but we're just going to stay with the sheep. Gilead, what do we read about Gilead? Well, Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. It's a lot safer beyond the Jordan than it is in the Kishon River with 900 chariots ready to kill you. It's, Gilead will just stay over here in the Jordan where it's easier. You gotta love Dan 
any boaters in the house. Dan, why did he stay with his ships? Pastor, I can't come on Sunday. We've taken our boat on the lake. I couldn't resist. Um, That's it. Dan, hey, we got to be out in the boat. Yeah, but God, we need you fighting the enemy. This is 20 years of oppression we're trying to be free from. Yeah, but there's a good wind. We're sailing. It's probably merchant ships, but you, you get it. We're on our boat, man. We can't come. Asher, what are you doing, Asher? Well, verse 17, sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Man, it's beautiful at the coast this time of year. I can't go into battle. Now, this isn't to say that taking care of sheep and boating for, uh, in, for profit or for leisure or that needing to be down the coast is necessarily sinful. We're not doing a sort of sacred and secular distinction here. Those aren't bad things. They can be actually very good things. But, uh, but it's important to know that we can all come up with all kinds of excuses to opt out of God's urgent mission. Jesus talked about this, told a story about everybody's invited to the banquet. And one guy says, hey, I just bought a field I need to go look at. Well, there's nothing wrong with looking at a field. But when Jesus is calling you to the banquet, you better come to the banquet. It's about what's God doing at this time. What has he called us to? What's the proper thing to do in this moment? It's a sober section. Because God is the one who marches and defeats the enemy, but he calls Israel to participate. It's amazing. We get to participate in what God is doing. He calls us to play a part, and we must not be passive. Zebulun, they risk their lives. And so now as they're all singing the song at the gathering, when it comes to like the verse about Reuben, you can kind of imagine everybody's kind of looking down. If you're in Reuben, and I don't know, wow, okay, I've got to slip out and go to the bathroom when we sing that verse. But here we got, man, but when it comes to Zebulun, we were there, man. They risked their lives. They saw a miracle. They got in. There was nothing greater on the planet happening that day. Verse 1 says they sang the song on that day, the day of battle. Nothing on the entire planet happened that was more important than what happened that day that Reuben saw and participated in. I'm sure it was a beautiful day at the coast, but you missed out on the greatest thing happening on the planet, recorded for all time in the word of God. That's a big miss. That's a big miss. Next, we read of the victory itself. Last week, we saw the victory. It was mysterious. God routed the chariots. That's all we found out. Well, here we find out what happened. Verse 20, from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, what's a torrent? It's a rushing water, uh, and we saw earlier, we read about rain. It's a rushing water, uh, a storm. A torrent swept Kish, uh, torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul. So evidently what happens is they're, bringing their, they're riding their chariots, uh, at, or perhaps they're parked, I don't know, but they're near the Kishon River, and the people of Israel are coming down the hill to battle them. Well, God delivers like um, a weather smart bomb. He, he delivers a rushing uh, water, a rain, evidently some kind of a storm. Maybe it started at the, at the beginning point of the Kishon River, but whatever. There is this torrent of water, this rain that comes. So the river overflows its banks. And once there is mud and flood everywhere, the, evidently the wheels of the chariots can't move. Because what happens is the king, I mean, sorry, the general gets out of his chariot, we read last week. 
Why? Because it's not moving. He can't ride in his chariot, so he gets out and goes on foot. That happens to all of them, evidently. God defeats them through a storm. Those who worship the, the God of the storm, Baal, find out that Yahweh is the God over all weather, all wind, all water, all planets, uh, all, all circumstances bow to him. So Yahweh defeats the people that are worshiping the God of the storm by bringing a storm which floods the river where they are for battle so that their chariots can't move and they all die by the sword of Israel. It's a great, great account, not just of Barak beating Sisera, not even of God beating Sisera, but God triumphing over the false god Baal in their very faces. And for Israel to say, look, what you were trusting in is nothing compared to God. You were worshiping Baal, but look what your God does. It's a song to remind everyone of God's power, to commemorate the works of God, and to remind everybody what it means to be God's people what it means to be serving the God who rules over all and acts as he pleases. See, we forget, and songs remind us. Songs not only remind us intellectually, but songs stir the emotions, stir the heart. Songs affect us so that our wills are tender before the Lord. True songs, biblical truth songs, soften our hearts before the Lord. That's why after this torrent comes. Look what it says in verse 21. Uh, The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. That sounds like a line out of a college fight song, doesn't it? March on my soul with might. It's like, I hear what God did. I want my heart to continue marching. I know the battle's over, but we're still marching, full of faith towards God. That's what singing truth about the victories of God does to the soul. Last section, God's friends and enemies. God marches, the people march, and the whole conclusion of the song is about, are you a friend or an enemy of God? That's where it closes. Verse 24, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. This is a song. Everybody's singing this. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answered, indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises. The land had rest for 40 years. Jael, 
she's honored. She is honored with unusual language, wouldn't you say? Most blessed of women. Of tent-dwelling women most blessed. Just most blessed of women sounds like a description of the Virgin Mary. But there is a description, there is a distinguish of she's most blessed of tent-dwelling women. But anyway, this is high praise for what she did. And there is this remembrance of what she did. And there is in this Hebrew poem a graphic recounting of what she did. She is most blessed because of what she did with a mallet and a tent peg. She is honored because she acted decisively against the enemy of God. She acted decisively according to God's purposes. She risked her life to kill this general um, even though her family, she may, have, she may have turned away from her family because we found out last week they had sided with Canaan. So she may have turned her back on her own family. And then the song gives us every detail. The mallet, the tent peg, he sank, he fell, he died. People are singing that. Children are singing this when they gather together. Now, how do we process that? How in the world do you sing something so graphic? How is there this repeated graphic language and description of death? Uh, is that just something that happened 3,000 years ago? Why is this? Well, one of my favorite Old Testament commentators is a guy named Dale Davis, and he writes about this in a way that I think will be memorable. So I wanted to share this with this. It's a little bit of a reading here of his explanation of this passage. I think this will serve us all. He writes, remember, this is a song of Yahweh celebrating his saving help. Verse 3. Here Israel is delighting in and relishing that salvation, the overthrow of the tyrant Sisera. As I have grown older, I have developed my capacity for enjoying certain foods. For example, if I am eating jello or ice cream or pudding, I will take a bit. And instead of gobbling it down, we'll savor it. That is, I run it around my mouth, up around my teeth, down around my teeth, sometimes through my teeth. Silently, question mark, he writes, sloshing the delicious stuff around my mouth, extracting the ultimate enjoyment from each spoonful. I do the same with coffee or ginger ale. Occasionally, this drives my wife to the brink of insanity, but my philosophy properly defends my practice. Food is not to be consumed merely, but enjoyed. That is the way Israel views Yahweh's salvation. Yahweh's deliverance is meant to be enjoyed, savored, cherished, item by item, detail by detail, blow by blow, from dish of milk to peg to mallet to skull to feet. Someone may think that that is being vicious. It is not. It is being pious. Perhaps many of us in the West cannot rejoice when God smashes oppressors because we have never been so oppressed or crushed by tyranny on a significant scale. And for that, we should thank God. 
That's why we frequently fail to appreciate texts like this. We can't really understand them from our study chairs, from our padded pews, or from our recliners beside our cozy fireplaces. Naturally, you can disagree. If so, you can claim more refinement, but less faith. The details of the story or the details of God's salvation releasing his people from a vicious oppressor. And we close by looking at Sisera's mother. How interesting, a passage about Sisera's mother. And when we first read it, we are sort of drawn in maybe to feel sorry for her. She is looking out the lattice. She is waiting, saying, where, oh, where is my son? But when we read the callous comments from her and her princesses, some argue that was his harem, but when we hear these ladies' comments, then we are sorry, not sorry, at what's actually happening here. Uh, The passage says, where is he, where is he? Uh, Have they not found and divided the spoil, verse 30? The princesses say, and it says, Sisera's mom agrees, what's taking so long is after defeating Israel, they have to go through the spoil. They have to sort it all out. Well, what are they sorting out? Well, dyed materials, dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of uh, dyed materials embroidered for the neck. Sisera is simply taking time to sort through all of the clothes of the people they've defeated. Oh, yeah, and rape women. That's why he's not here. That's why he's not here. And they speak of it so callously. You saw that in the text, right? A womb or two for every man. They're dividing the spoil, clothing and women. A womb or two for every man. A a womb or two. They are degrading these women such that they just speak of them as their organs. And it's so familiar a process that Sisera's army, the Canaanites, would just naturally sexually abuse the women of the nations, the lands that they defeat, that mom and princesses are just sitting around saying, oh yeah, once they're done raping, every guy will get a woman or two. Once they're done raping the women, then they'll be back. So we will wait. The death of Sisera is an act of justice against an evil oppressor who cruelly, cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years and customarily raped women of the nations that they defeated. So two women we close with. One's a friend of God, J.L. One is the mother of God's enemy, Sisera's mother, And then we are left with the final conclusion, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The vicious killing of Sisera, the Bible says, may that happen to all of God's enemies. But your friends, well, your friends, may the sun rise. May your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. May those who follow you be light and bright and rising as the sun. The reality is the song ends by saying there's really two kinds of people. There are the friends of God and there are the enemies of God. It is a fixed binary. 
There is no spectrum. There is, you are spiritually alive or you are spiritually dead. You are light or you are darkness. The New Testament says you are enemy or you are friend. You are believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ or you are not. And this is kind of pointing to the end day. Ultimately, all those who have not worshiped God, who have received Jesus Christ, who have bowed before his lordship as their king, is an enemy of God, the scripture says. God is loving and gracious and sends his own son to die and to rise for us. And so if you have not met Christ, this this is the day for you to turn to him, I pray this 3,000-year-old poem, obscure song about some people way from the past that none of us knew about before we read this. I pray that God speaks to you through that, that you are not just cruising along okay. You are living, all of us, all of us prior to Christ are living as an enemy of God. And just as God rescued Israel from the oppression of Sisera. So God rescues believers in Christ from the oppression of sin, from the oppression of death, from the oppression of evil spirits, from the oppression of all darkness, and ultimately the grip of death itself. If we are a friend of God, a believer in Christ, then the passage calls us by example to celebrate the work of God, celebrate his victory, and throw ourselves into the battle. To not be on the boat or with the sheep or in the safe place with Gilead, but to jump into the purposes of God. It's a psalm about, it's a song about participation. It's a song about celebrating the work of God and thanking God that he moved such that people moved with him and marched with him. And finally, it is a song to commemorate. It's a commemoration. We commemorate the work of God. The song interrupts the narrative. It interrupts the story and says we're going to stop and we're going to have some time to celebrate and sing what God has done. We're going to remember. We're not just going to go on to the next story. We're going to pause and we're going to praise him and we're going to celebrate the details of what he has done. Remembering, singing, testifying, these actions form the people of God. It is in remembering what he's done, remembering that he is the Lord over all, the Lord of the storm, the Lord over Canaan, the Lord over false idols, that he rescues his people, that he uses anyone that is available, that he uses the unlikely to do heroic things for his glory, that we get to be a part of his mission in the world to bring his truth to all people. And so commemorating ensures that the people of God recall, but not only recall, but their hearts are shaped and formed by the very songs that we sing and the very liturgical practices that we enjoy together as we gather. So we are formed, we are shaped by remembering as we sing, as we hear God's word, as we testify, and as we receive communion. Communion is much more than a commemoration. It's more than a memorial, but it's certainly not any less than that. We commemorate and experience afresh by the Holy Spirit the work of Jesus Christ. We experience afresh through the word and spirit, through the sacrament, union, communion 
with Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's powerful that God has left us with a means to remember, to sing for sure, but to hold the bread and the cup, to taste the bread and the cup, to experience afresh what Christ has done for us, recalling and remembering his work for us in the cross and resurrection. That is a rich commemoration that shapes and forms our hearts. So when we sing, when we hear God's word, when we receive communion, it prepares us to be those people who go into the world, shaped by him and his truth, remembering what he is like and what he has called us to be, to follow him in our lives and represent him wherever he leads us. And we do so as friends. We're gonna, I'm gonna invite the band up. We're gonna receive communion this morning and we are going to do so as the friends of God. Let's pray and we'll receive together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.